You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBneutral. You can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com where you can find all of the back episodes. You can find some links to make a donation or to send me a message. First up is a piece written by Edward Snowden. You can find this at edwardsnowden.substack.com. A hell of our own making. The last week has been hard for me, and yet I can only imagine what this week has felt like and what the future will bring for the people, the people's, of Afghanistan. Nearly 20 years after it was launched in the wake of 9-11, the long war in Afghanistan, one of the great cruelties of my generation, has unexpectedly reached its expectedly tragic conclusion. I am certainly not sad to see it go, but it's difficult to avoid a profound sense of regret at the error of it all. When I recently spoke with Daniel Ellsberg, He pointed out that neither of us is entirely a pacifist. Dan and I agree, and are on record agreeing, that certain wars are wrong. But if one can conceive of a just war, or at least a less unjust war, there are wrong ways to fight it, and particularly wrong ways to finish it. There are also, come to think of it, wrong ways to begin wars too, namely, refusing to declare them. The war in Afghanistan was not one of those wars. It was not justifiable. It was, is, and forever will be wrong, which means leaving is the right decision. Yet there was a time when I felt like picking Afghanistan up by its ankles and shaking it until all the terrorists fell out, like scorpions from a boot. Most Americans felt that way in the autumn of 2001, and I was no different. I was 18 years old and almost competitively wrong about everything. I actually believed most of what I heard on TV from quote official sources. Not everything I heard, but enough. I trusted my government. At least I trusted it to know more about Afghanistan than I did. And the government told me this, that Afghanistan's ruling Taliban were harboring Al-Qaeda and that both the Taliban and Al-Qaeda hated us for our freedoms. My youthful righteousness was manipulated by collaborators in the media until it burned all the red, white, and blue of a flame, a flame that could scorch, but also a flame that could serve as a beacon of light in the darkness. This was why I signed up, to defeat the, quote, enemies of freedom, or to make the enemy unto us fair, equitable, democratic. The motto of the United States Army Special Forces was to my younger self, a hook so perfectly baited as to be irresistible, de oppresso liber, to free 
the oppressed. Shamefully, it took me a very long time, peering down from my technocratic perch at the CIA and later the NSA, to apprehend the nature of my work. Transforming the internet, a liberating, democratizing tool, into an architecture of oppression. But before I took that step towards clarity, I struggled to apprehend the nature of our violence in Afghanistan and especially in Iraq. Quote, You are either with us or you are against us in the fight against terror, said Bush, the younger. But he never defined who exactly was the enemy. If you look beyond the label, terrorists are just murderers with a political motive, mere criminals. So were our enemies states, or were they criminal groups within those states? And were those criminal groups subject to direction by the states in which they operated, or to other states? And how? And if we dealt with criminals in the way we deal with states, does that not unduly elevate them to something close to a peer? In substituting a military action for a police action, are we not setting a dangerous precedent for the future? These questions spread like a net, a dragnet, and caught up everyone. I'm not trying to say this realization was immediate. It was not. It was a process beset by rationalization, the reflex of a mind desperate to escape an inevitably dark denouement. Precisely because I had intended to do good, it was difficult to accept the possibility that I had become involved in something bad perhaps even evil. Intentions are what paved the roads to Kabul, a hell of our own making. But that might be the charitable explanation, because for all the talk of democratizing Afghanistan, it was never clear that it was Afghanistan we were fighting. Weren't we fighting the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, and weren't they backed by Pakistan? And what about Saudi Arabia? Ultimately, we Americans were fighting ourselves, our own governance, as we came to understand how the agony of 9-11 had been politicized. Of all the great cliches to be revived by this new lost war, Afghanistan, the grave of empires, never get involved in a land war in Asia, the most banal was also the truest. We are our own worst enemies. Just hours before I sat down to draft this, the President of the United States gave a speech in which he tried to defend the honor of this war, a defense that is frankly offensive, and that I think most offends the families of the injured and the dead. President Biden then went on to assert that our erstwhile ally, Osama bin Laden, had been brought to justice. Our noble lie. He could have been brought to justice, but we shot him instead. He wasn't even in Afghanistan. If there are any lessons to be learned from this tragic sequel to Saigon, you can be assured we will not learn them. We will just sit by as the people of Afghanistan, many of whom were as deluded by American promises as Americans themselves, cling to hopes and cling to planes and fall lost to the desert of theocratic rule. Some will say they didn't fight, they get what they deserve, to which I say, 
and what do we deserve? A fractious country comp comprised of warring tribes, unable to form an inclusive whole, unable to wade beyond shallow differences in sect and identity in order to provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to themselves and their posterity. And so they perish in the span of a breath without ever reaching the promised shore. Today, the country this describes is Afghanistan. Tomorrow, the country this describes might be my own. Next up, a piece by Caitlin Johnstone. This is at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. You need to understand that the U.S. is the most tyrannical regime on Earth. You get a lot of moral clarity when you realize that the U.S. government is the most despotic and corrupt regime on the entire planet by a very wide margin. This clarity informs your perspective in a way that helps you see through a lot of the propaganda narratives that are laid over the public's vision about what's going on in our world. Whenever I say the U.S. is the most tyrannical regime on Earth, I get a lot of objections from people. And these are always people who simply haven't thought very hard about the horrific realities of U.S. foreign policy. Sure, you can name some governments who are more brutal and oppressive towards their own citizenry than Washington, but you can't name any who are more brutal and oppressive overall when you zoom out and look at the big picture. The United States is currently circling the planet with hundreds of military bases and waging wars which have killed millions and displaced tens of millions just since the turn of this century. Its sanctions and blockades are starving people to death en masse every single day. It works to destroy any nation which disobeys its dictates by toppling their governments via CIA coups, proxy armies, partial and full-scale invasions, and the most egregious number of election interferences in the entire world. There is no other government on earth about which you can say anything like any of these things. No other government on earth is doing anything which rises to this level of evil. Not Iran, not North Korea, not Russia or China or any of the other big scary boogeymen we're told we must be afraid of by the mass media. You can argue that other governments have perpetrated comparable evil evils in the past but you cannot argue that any of them are doing so currently. In our present reality, as it actually exists, the United States is the worst monster, and it's not even close. There's really no counter-argument to this. Even if you're an intellectual six-year-old and still believed in 2021 that the U.S. uses its military for beneficent purposes, the fact that we now know the U.S. military just wasted trillions of dollars and thousands of lives on a 20-year war which accomplished literally nothing besides making horrible people rich and lied to the world about it the entire time should dispel that childish delusion once and for all. The fact that the U.S. happens to export the bulk of its tyranny outside of its borders, although certainly not all of it, doesn't change the fact that it is more tyrannical than any other government. 
This just means its tyranny dominates the entire world instead of a single nation. And ordinary Americans don't even get anything out of it. It would be bad enough if they were consenting to their government committing murderous piracy around the world because all that theft was enriching their lives and making Americans the wealthiest, happiest, healthiest people on earth. But it isn't. Americans experience some of the world's worst wealth inequality without any of the social safety nets afforded to people in every other developed nation, so they're not even getting a slice of the piracy pie. They only consent to their government being the most despotic regime on earth because they are propagandized. So in this sense, all the accusations the U.S. and its allies make against governments which refuse to bow to Washington are in reality a kind of whataboutism. Whataboutism is a word empire apologists constantly bleat whenever you point out that the U.S. is perpetrating some version of an abuse it accuses another government of perpetrating. And it always is. But in reality, they're the ones using accusations to try and distract the conversation from what it should actually be about, the most tyrannical and abusive government on earth. There is no legitimate reason to focus on the abuses of any other power structure as long as the U.S. and its allies are committing vastly worse atrocities. The most powerful and destructive government on earth should be receiving far more criticism than any other. But instead, because its propaganda dominates the world, it actually receives far less criticism. Being clear on this gross imbalance and the need to correct it is instructive for anyone with their eyes open because it shows where your efforts and opposition should be directed. This next piece is written by Elaine Clift and is published at Salon.com. Human rights. It's a term tossed around all too easily. A hollow piece of rhetoric practiced mostly in the breach. A faux cliché uttered in fragile times. It's a mantra lacking moral conviction and humane behavior. A way to cover the shame of failed promises. A salve without resolve spread by self-righteous glib politicians at podiums and to the media. It's a hollow claim that enables us to believe that we are an exceptional country. It's a lie in the face of multiple human tragedies in which we are complicit. These are tragedies that we fuel, facilitate, ignore, without asking ourselves how committed we are as a nation to the imperative of human rights. I come to this awareness when I ask how it is that we condemn Russia's or China's or Myanmar's human rights abuses against their people, while continuing to sanction Israel's human rights abuses against Palestinian people. I come to it when I think about how we abandon the people of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, who helped us during that dreadful war in Southeast Asia, and then tried to do the same thing to the Afghan people, who worked at the U.S. Embassy or for American contractors and the American military. Lessened in its shameful practice, but not eliminated, only because of public outcry. I come to it when we're silent about what Saudi Arabia has done in Yemen and in its embassy in Turkey, and when our silence did not help end the atrocities in Syria. 
Of course, I understand the politics of non-action no matter where it occurs. But when politics trumps humanity, I shudder. I come to it when a kid is tased by cops for going through some bushes to see his girlfriend when black men are shot in the back and black women are shot in bed. I come to it when women are denied agency over their own bodies and jailed for, quote, infanticide when they miscarry. I come to it when we fail to make the connections between poverty, policy, and practices, whether in schools, courtrooms, jails, or other institutions. For surely housing, food, security, safety from judicial harm, appropriate quality health care, a decent and equal education, and a livable planet are all basic human rights. Surely there is something inhumane about the Bezoses and Zuckerbergs of the world accumulating billions of dollars of wealth while paying no taxes, while the Poobahs of parliaments think that earning a livable wage is too much to sanction and legislate. The fact that almost 7 million people in the world live in abject poverty according to World Vision, often situational, generational, or geographic, while wealthy nations like ours look the other way, illuminates the hollow rhetoric of, quote, human rights. It is also shameful that the United States has the fourth highest poverty rate in the world at nearly 18% and the largest income inequality gap in the world, according to Brookings Institution. According to the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a milestone document in the history of that concept. There are two kinds of human rights violations, those committed overtly by the state and those in which the state fails to protect against human rights violations. These violations can be civil, political, economic, cultural, or social in nature. Civil rights include the right to life, safety, and equality before the law while political rights include the right to a fair trial and the right to vote. Economic, social, and cultural rights include the right to work, the right to education, and the right to physical and mental health. These rights relate to things like clean water, adequate housing, appropriate health care, non-discrimination at work, maternity leave, fair wages, and more. Just take a look at that list of human rights and then try convincing me that we haven't violated and do not continue to violate each and every one of them, all the while claiming that we champion human rights. Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King Jr. are often quoted on the issue of human rights, reminding us of our failures to protect these rights. Mandela asks that we remember that, quote, to deny people their human rights is to challenge their very humanity. King admonished us to never forget that a right delayed is a right denied. Mary Robinson, Ireland's first woman president, asked us to never forget that, quote, today's human rights violations are the causes of tomorrow's conflicts. Wise words all, but how sad that we need to hear them over and over again and that we still fail to instill them in our hearts and our policies. For me, the words of Eleanor Roosevelt resonate most. Where, after all, do universal human rights begin, she asked. Her answer? In small places, 
close to home. So close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Such are the places where every man, woman, and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere.
And that was Midnight Oil with the song When the Generals Talk, which you can find on Red Sails in the Sunset. This piece is by Sarah Lazar and is published at InTheseTimes.com. We can't let the generals who lied about the Afghanistan war define its legacy. The horrific culmination of the 20-year U.S. occupation of Afghanistan should be cause for sober reflection on the imperial hubris and bipartisan pro-war consensus that enabled such a ruinous military intervention to grind on for so long. But instead of a reckoning, the very architects of the war are getting the final word on its legacy, a Kafkaesque conclusion to a remarkably cruel chapter. This dynamic adds fresh insult to the harrowing conditions Afghans now face as the Taliban seizes control of Afghanistan and the United States implements callous closed-door policies towards people attempting to flee the country, leading to ghastly scenes at Kabul's airport. Chief among these figures is General David Petraeus, who is notable for the skill with which he has charmed and worked the media throughout his long career. He is putting that skill to use now, garnering headline after headline after headline, braying for a continued U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. Quote, This is an enormous national security setback, and it is on the verge of getting much worse unless we decide to take really significant action, he told the Rita Cosby Show on WABC Radio on August 13. That same day, in an interview with NPR, he advocated for the United States to reverse its withdrawal. Quote, I certainly would do that in the short term, and I would certainly consider it for the mid and long term, he said. In that NPR interview, Petraeus cited his own role as commander of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2011 to illustrate his expertise. Well, we weren't contemplating with a withdrawal when I was doing this, he proclaimed. We had 150,000 coalition forces when I was privileged to command U.S. and all other foreign forces in Afghanistan. The declaration is notable because Petraeus oversaw a particularly bloody chapter of the Afghanistan war. After replacing General Stanley McChrystal, Petraeus implemented an aggressive counterinsurgency strategy and loosened the rules of engagement, giving U.S. troops a wider berth to fire artillery and to destroy houses and buildings. He also significantly increased the notorious practice of conducting night raids on Afghan homes. As Michael Hastings noted of Petraeus in 2011 for Rolling Stone, quote, He drastically upped the number of airstrikes, launching more than 3,450 between July and November, the most since the invasion in 2001. But Petraeus didn't just implement these policies. He also launched a charm offensive, holding interviews with numerous major media outlets championing championing his actions, and even publicly challenging the Obama administration's planned withdrawal timeline. His rosy remarks in a July 2011 address at the Forum for New Diplomacy in Paris are worth noting. Quote, Mr. Petraeus called the Afghan army and police forces increasingly credible, 
the New York Times reported. He also described how they were steadily taking more responsibility from NATO allies as a gradual withdrawal of tens of thousands of U.S. troops looms. Such a statement gives pause, not only because it has been proven wrong, but also because it contrasts with the reflections he has shared behind closed doors. In an August 16, 2017 government interview revealed in the Afghanistan papers, a tranche of documents from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, published by the Washington Post in 2019. Petraeus sounded a note of pessimism about the U.S. strategy. Quote, I knew it was going to be a longer process, he said. I had no expectation that we would be able to flip Afghanistan. But this wasn't the first time Petraeus ran PR for a disastrous war. Former President George W. Bush appointed Petraeus as commander of multinational forces in Iraq from 2007 to 2008, during which time he oversaw a surge of 30,000 U.S. troops and the implementation of a counterinsurgency strategy rooted in protracted occupation. This strategy elicited protest, including from within Congress, as it marked a significant escalation of the war. Petraeus didn't just implement the strategy, he publicly championed it, appearing at congressional hearings in full uniform to declare that the search was, surge was working, and to argue against pulling out of Iraq. Quote, As a bottom line up front, the military objectives of the surge are, in large measure, being met he said to Congress in September 2007. This was after he declared in an April 2007 interview with Charlie Rose that he was a qualified optimist about the surge. It's a particularly harsh irony that such an effective public ambassador of U.S. wars, who has his own reputation to sanitize, would emerge as a key commentator on the tragic consequences of a war he helped oversee, and unfortunately, he is not alone. Retired NATO General Wesley Clark, former head of U.S. Central Command Joseph Votel, three-star Army General Douglas Lute, retired Admiral and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander James Stavridis, and former U.S. Army Captain Matthew Zeller have all chimed in with their opinions in recent days. In their media quotes and appearances, these fellow war architects are broadly presented as good-faith observers, experts who are shining an important light on a complex situation. Yet the Afghanistan papers show that in private, military officials admitted to befuddlement, confusion, and failure. Quote, We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing, Lute told government interviewers in 2015. What are we trying to do here? We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. Turning to the architects and enforcers of such a war to better understand what went wrong is like asking a police force to investigate itself for wrongdoing. Side note. Military spokespeople lie. Police lie. It is proven again and again and again. Reports that rely on statements by military personnel or police should come with content warnings up front. Content warning. This story contains quotes from military and or police personnel who are notoriously known for lying to the public. 
back to the piece. Perhaps most eyebrow-raising among this gallery of militarists-turned-pundits is John Bolton, former National Security Advisor under Trump, who appeared on NPR's Morning Edition on August 16 and delivered a blistering criticism of any withdrawal from Afghanistan while making the case for open-ended U.S. occupation. Quote, What we've got to do, I think, is find ways to see if there's not some way to reverse this disaster and get the Taliban out, he said. Bolton's statement is consistent with his 17-month tenure as National Security Advisor for former President Trump, during which he made every effort to put the United States on more confrontational footing. Bolton helped to bring the country to the brink of a disastrous war with Iran in 2019. And in May 2019, he declared that the U.S. military must be ready to go to support the coup attempt by Juan Guaido in Venezuela. In 2018, Bolton threatened the International Criminal Court with sanctions for investigating U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan, including torture at CIA-run black sites. And when the ICC dropped the investigation in 2019, citing the lack of cooperation from relevant parties, including the United States, Bolton was gleeful. Quote, this is a vindication of the president's support for American sovereignty and a rejection of the idea that there can be accountability for American citizens by any authority other than American constitutional institutions, he said. To be fair, NPR interviewer Noel King did try to push back on some of Bolton's more jingoistic remarks. And not all of the military brass interviewed clamored for more war. Wesley Clark, for example, cited, quote, 20 years of American misjudgments of poor prioritizations and failed policies. But still, the message sent by amplifying the voices of so many of the war's designers is that they still have credibility. The implication is that more deep-rooted critiques that question the invasion in the first place and demand accountability from those responsible are out of bounds. We mustn't let the Boltons and the Petraeuses of the world get the final say on what we have learned from Af the Afghanistan war, the horrors of which are still being borne by people in Afghanistan and will be borne by people there for decades, as our other interventions have. Instead, media bookers and writers seeking comment should perhaps seek out the voices who didn't lie about the war they're now providing commentary on. Generals and commanders and pro-war national security advisors will only ever see the problem as not enough war, mistaking the occupation's biggest indictment, that the Afghan government fell so quickly, lacking a shred of legitimacy or political will, as a sign that we need a protracted U.S. military presence. There are plenty of other voices that could be weighing in on the U.S. withdrawal. The countless people around the world, including in Afghanistan, who have been marching and protesting against the war since September 12, 2001, warning that a 9-11-era revenge fever dream would never bring justice or peace. Representative Barbara Lee, the only member of Congress who had the courage to vote against the authorization to go to war with Afghanistan, the advocates and organizers and Afghan activists themselves who are demanding that the United States end its unconscionable asylum policies and welcome in Afghan refugees right now, and not just those who can prove they supported the United States. The people demanding material reparations for the people of Afghanistan, and that 
is just a quick list. What we don't need is to watch self-serving military brass rewrite history to make themselves and their defense contractor friends look like the heroes who no one listened to, when in reality, they are all we ever heard from. It's all just a part of that big propaganda, big corporate media machine in the United States. The reason we don't need overt government control of our media is because the popular and profitable corporate media toes the government line. They put forward the government narrative. They feature the government spokespeople or people that speak on behalf of the government desires, what, what the government wants to push and promote and do. And they marginalize all the people who oppose it. They marginalize all the protesters against the Afghan war in this case, and against all kinds of things that the government is against. They get marginalized in the media and those voices get pushed down shut down and aren't featured and a very large proportion of the country who still depend on the corporate media to get their news and information hear these biased stories and this biased slant and that helps convince them to adopt the government's position the government's point of view as the right thing to do this is why when polls are taken such as prior to the invasion of Afghanistan or, or the bombing and attacks on Afghanistan, 90% in some polls were approving military action. Ahead of the war in Iraq, 72% and more in some polls were approving the invasion of Iraq, which had nothing to do with anything except the government's important significant disinformation campaign remember weapons of mass destruction wmd the the big huge case they made for that remember the constant um pushing in the media by the government and and its supporters of links between saddam hussein and al-qaeda which were patently false they were enemies but the propaganda machine that we have works well. It does its job. It's extremely powerful. And we need to resist it. And we need to fight it. And we need to counteract it in any way we can, wherever we can. Next up is a piece published at mintpressnews.com. This is written by Alan McLeod. You've likely not ever heard of them, but Creative Associates International, CAI, is one of the largest and most powerful non-governmental organizations operating anywhere in the world. A pillar of soft U.S. power, the group has been an architect in privatizing the Iraqi education system, designed messenger apps meant to overthrow the government of Cuba, served as a front group for the infamous Blackwater Mercenary Force, now rebranded as Academy, and liaised with the Contra Death Squads in Nicaragua. As such, it has functioned as, quote, 
both an instrument of foreign policy and as a manifestation of a broader imperial project, in the words of Professor Kenneth Saltman of the University of Illinois, Chicago. An ordinary person arriving at Creative Associates' website, festooned as it is with images of smiling African children, Asian kids being taught how to read, and happy Latino farmers harvesting their fields, would likely conclude that the outfit is some sort of progressive nonprofit charity tirelessly working to empower vulnerable people around the world. Yet subjecting the organization to a little more scrutiny, some red flags immediately begin to emerge. First is the indecipherable word salad it uses when describing what it actually is in its Us at a Glance section. Quote, Creative Associates International provides outstanding on-the-ground development services and forges partnerships to deliver sustainable solutions to global challenges. It says, as if this is any sort of answer to the question, who are you? Continuing, it boasts that, quote, Creative is recognized for its ability to quickly adapt and excel in conflict and post-conflict environments. A statement that sounds worryingly like one private mercenary armies use to advertise their services. In today's world, the United States government does not use only overtly violent methods, wars, invasions, coups, training of domestic death squads, etc., to achieve regime change. It also uses so-called soft power techniques, the training of leaders, education, economic coercion, etc., to maintain a hegemonic grip on the world. And Creative Associates International is a crucial part of that system. The company was founded in 1979 by M. Chirito Cruvant, the scion of a wealthy land-owning Bolivian family who fled the country after the Progressive Revolution there in 1952. Today it has grown into a massive for-profit behemoth working in at least 85 countries with a full-time staff of around a thousand and countless more contractors. And while it is technically a private institution, the vast majority of its funding comes directly from Washington. Over the past 20 years, the government has given Creative Associates $1,998,138,515 in contracts, according to Tracy Eaton, a journalist who has studied the company's activities in Cuba. Of this, USAID has supplied over $1.8 billion. Furthermore, the organization's Global Advisory Board underscores that this is not exactly some progressive arts charity, as its name and branding often apply. Of the seven members of its board, six are senior U.S. officials. These include Barack Obama's Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia, a four-star general, and the ex-Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. Quote, Creative Associates is among the top U.S. government contractors entrusted with trying to help engineer political transitions. The company is part of that lucrative enterprise dubbed the Democracy Industrial Complex, Eaton told Mint Press. In a roundabout way, former head of USAID Andrew Natsios, another member of CAI's board, seemed to agree with Eaton when the Trump administration was considering cutting the foreign aid budget 
Natsios argued vehemently against it. Quote, what you're basically doing is eviscerating the most important tool of American influence in the developing world, which is our development program, he said. I don't think they understand what the role of USAID is, what USAID's mission directors are. USAID's mission directors are among the most influential foreigners in the country, he added, apparently confirming that the organization's focus is less helping others and more promoting Washington's interests through American social and economic power. Afghanistan is by far and away the country where Creative Associates projects have secured the most funding. Combined with its Iraq enterprise, the company has raked in well over half a billion dollars worth of government contracts. Quote, Even losing wars make money. If you go to the D.C. area, in the Virginia and Maryland suburbs, there are all these types of companies that exist because of the war. And the development industry got very wealthy off of it, said Matthew Ho, a former Marine captain and Department of Defense and State Department official. The whole grift of it was simply breathtaking, he added. In 2009, Ho resigned his post in Afghanistan with the State Department in protest of the U.S.'s escalation of war. This is one of the driving forces of war. This is the primary driving force of war. Profit-making. General Smedley Butler, many decades ago, wrote about it, spoke about it, and you can find that in writing, and I've read it here before. War is a racket. The war profiteers and the ability for a relatively small number of people and companies to make enormous, enormous profits off of the death and destruction of human beings is both the driving force and one of the most disgusting features of all wars. Creative Associates has secured a number of lucrative contracts in the reconstruction of both countries, particularly with regard to their education systems, including building schools, writing and printing textbooks, training teachers and administering and managing education systems, hiring an American company to do this work rather than giving local governments the funding and power to plan their own futures fulfills a very important function. According to Saltman, who noted that this allows the U.S. to essentially retain complete control over Iraqi and Afghan society. Labeling it as a classic example of disaster capitalism, Saltman describes the remodeling of Iraqi society as, quote, a radical free market experiment bent on demolishing the public sector and shifting control of civil society nearly completely to the private sector and an attempt to essentially hand a nation over to corporations. And that statement really hits the nail on the head of what drives modern U.S. wars. We don't, we don't fight countries. We don't uh, sanction countries. We don't propagandize against countries that have open markets and let corporations have their will more or less in those markets and profit and extract money from those those nations we propagandize against 
we sanction, we undermine, we go to war against countries that attempt in small ways and sometimes in large ways to close their markets, to control their corporations, if any, to have government-supported uh, control or government control of the entities and the systems that serve the public, that provide for the public. Venezuela, Iran, Cuba, Nicaragua, all of these, Bolivia, in the coup that we support in Bolivia, this is the foundational element of our foreign policy and how we deal with or deal against other nations and their governments. Creative Associates school books in Afghanistan have purged any mention of the past few decades of Afghan history or the Taliban from its textbooks. Quote, you can't buy that kind of thought control unless you have a few hundred million, wrote one American educator. This is really interesting because when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and we funded and supported the Mujahideen, Mujahideen, some of whom were the precursor, precursors of the Taliban, we created textbooks then as well. In those textbooks, images of which have been circulating online lately, have numbers, counting textbooks, one, two, three, four, with pictures of one gun and two bombs, etc. And with lessons, so I've heard, we have scimitars with which we attack and kill the Soviets, the Soviet army, the Soviet occupiers. And interestingly, also I have heard that when the Taliban took control, when the Soviet army was uh, vanquished from Afghanistan, later to be replaced by the American invaders, the Taliban took those textbooks and crossed out. We use our scimitars to kill the Soviet uh, occupiers and just put in the American occupiers. I don't know the veracity of that story in particular, but the source I heard it from seemed relatively knowledgeable. And back to the piece. Uh, Creative Associates school books in Afghanistan have purged any mention of the past few decades of Afghan history or the Taliban from its textbooks. Quote, you can't buy that kind of thought control unless you have a few hundred million, wrote one American educator. Saltman also noted that working in war zones necessitated a high degree of security and that companies like CAI were likely given tens of millions of dollars of their contracts straight over to private mercenary groups like Blackwater. Ho was keen to stress that many people working at the lower levels of programs like these were well-intentioned, but that as one went higher up, the commitment to the benefit of others waned significantly. Quote, Groups like CAI would do the genuine work, but they would also be a front. It's a way for the CIA and other security services to get people into countries, he said. In 2009, it was reported that Creative Associates headquarters in Peshawar, Pakistan, was being used as a front for Blackwater 
to stage military operations along the Afghan-Pakistan border. Creative Associates have also secured lucrative contracts to work in other war zones, such as Libya and Yemen. For years, Creative Associates International worked closely with the CIA and other government agencies, operating and overseeing a complex set of projects targeting Cuba, all with one specific goal, the overthrow of the communist government, or sociopolitical change taking place in Cuba, as its own documents preferred to describe its mission. Creative Associates' most infamous project was perhaps its creation of a Twitter-like app called Zunzuneo. Zunzuneo first operated as a very useful communication tool, but slowly its creators injected it with regime change messages, with a plan to eventually direct all users to attend demonstrations and foment a Caribbean color revolution. The app's user base grew quickly, attracting 55,000 people by 2012, a huge number for a poor country with little internet access. The U.S. government attempted to hide its own role in the app's creation, secretly trying to convince Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey to buy into the company as a frontman. It is not clear what the outcome of these negotiations was. However, the Zunzuneo project was abruptly abandoned leaving Cubans wondering why their service provider suddenly stopped working. Only two years later, through an investigation by the Associated Press, did the truth come out. That was far from the last nefarious project Creative Associates was intimately involved in. Between 2009 and 2014, it was charged with recruiting regime change operatives on the island. Creative Associates brought young activists from all over Latin America to Cuba under the guise of a phony HIV-AIDS awareness drive, which internal memos describe as the, quote, perfect excuse to ferry their people in and out of the country. Creative Associates has also attempted to use the Cuban hip-hop community as a vehicle to drive regime change to the Caribbean nation. In 2009, it sent Serbian music promoter and color revolution expert Rako Bozik to the island, where he attempted to identify and bribe rappers into joining his project. Rap had exploded as a genre on the island in the previous decades, partly because of its new sound, and partly because Afro-Cuban rappers were using the medium to bring attention to taboo subjects such as racism. Creative associates, intersectional imperialists par excellence, smelled an opportunity to use it as a wedge issue. Bozik found a handful of artists willing to participate in the project and immediately began aggressively promoting them and getting their music played on Western radio stations. He also bribed big Latino music stars to allow the rappers to open up for them at their gigs, thus buying them extra credibility and exposure. Zunzuneo helped in this endeavor, sending users links to this exciting new music that it seemed the whole island was buzzing about. While Creative Associates' role in this was exposed, the general tactic of using rappers for regime change is still clearly active. Grant publications from USAID and its sister organization, the National Endowment for Democracy, NED, show that both groups are using hip-hop as a vehicle for their goals. For instance, one project from the NED's latest publications, entitled, quote, 
empowering Cuban hip-hop artists as leaders in society, states that its goal is to promote citizen participation and social change, and to raise awareness about the role hip-hop artists have in strengthening democracy in the region. Of course, for the United States, democracy in Cuba is synonymous with regime change. In July of this year, Cuban rappers led a bungled insurrection. The movement's face was a Cuban expat, Yotuel, an artist who was openly working with the U.S. government and whose song Patria y Vida was immediately promoted upon its release by American politicians and senior officials in Washington. Patria y Vida is considered constantly referred to in U.S. reports as a success story in, quote, democracy promotion activities. It is not clear whether Creative Associates was directly involved in the July protests in Cuba. They appear to be relatively embarrassed about the press they have received. In fact, there is no mention of any Cuban activities whatsoever, historical or current, on the company's website. The United States invaded Nicaragua in 1933, setting up the Somoza dictatorship to look after its interests. With the Sandinista Revolution in 1979, the U.S. lost control over the small Central American country. In an effort to turn back the clock, Washington funded, armed, trained, and supported the far-right Contra death squads infamous for their brutality. Direct support for the Contras ended in 1989, but at exactly the same time, the U.S. began employing creative associates to conduct all manner of operations involving the paramilitary organization, efforts that helped the U.S.-backed candidate Violeta Chamorro win the election in 1990. Local laws prohibiting foreign funding of political parties were circumvented by the establishment of a wide range of non-governmental organizations focusing on voter registration and political education, including programs aimed at uniting the anti-Sandinista opposition including the Contras, behind Chamorro. Now that the Sandinistas have returned to power, Creative Associates is back with a vengeance. As Nicaragua-based journalist Ben Norton told Mint Press, quote, Creative Associates has been very active in destabilization operations targeting the Sandinista government. With plentiful funding from USAID, the CIA cutout, has cynically exploited sensitive issues to increase social divisions, intentionally driving a wedge between Nicaraguans and their Sandinista government with programs targeting racial and ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, the LGBT community, and at-risk youth. Norton noted that while Creative Associates claims to be working purely to improve Nicaraguan society, collaborates exclusively with opposition-aligned groups thus effectively subsidizing the country's right wing. Quote, One of several USAID programs run by Creative Associates in Nicaragua has targeted vulnerable groups in Nicaragua's Caribbean coast. The CIA cutout plays off differences there in the Mosquito indigenous community and the Afro-Nicaraguan population, he added. Likewise, in El Salvador, U.S. efforts are branded as nonpartisan, but rather than help the leftist FMLN party, Washington pumps millions into the country through a myriad of NGOs that promote neoliberal, private sector solutions to problems. Quote, 
Behind the heartwarming photo ops, USAID's projects in El Salvador are stealthily advancing the interests of the Salvadoran corporate class, wrote Jacobin Magazine. Creative Associates has been at the heart of this effort. Since 2001, the organization has been awarded over $51 million for projects in El Salvador. It has also been at the forefront of propping up the U.S.-backed dictatorship in Honduras, helping the government militarize its response to unrest and other social problems there. And while the organization describes itself as being in the democracy promotion business, it is often involved in quite the opposite. Saltman notes that the company was involved with the 1991 coup d'etat in Haiti, which removed the democratically elected president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, from power. When Aristide swept back to power in a landslide in 2000, Creative Associates went back to work, attempting to remold the Haitian media system based on the for-profit corporate American model. Unsurprisingly, in Venezuela, Creative Associates also supports U.S.-backed opposition leader Juan Guaido. Its senior advisor, Jeff Fisher, called for the regime of Nicolas Maduro to acquiesce to an election organized by the OAS, a Washington-based group that played a key role in the overthrow of leftist Bolivian President Evo Morales in 2019. In his recommendations, Fisher suggested that a, quote, international force would have to be flown in to provide security for any election, and that the process should be designed by outsiders and not subject to Venezuelan laws. Creative Associates International essentially serves as a semi-privatized government in many countries, overseeing education and healthcare systems, security services, and local management. It also provides a wide range of clandestine services, spying, intelligence, and regime change operations. Once a domain of CIA and other three-letter agencies, this sort of work is now largely done by the private sector. As National Endowment for Democracy co-founder Alan Weinstein told the Washington Post, quote, A lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. The utility of this is manyfold. First, contracting out the work of nation-building to U.S.-based third parties allows Washington to maintain control over a country without a formal occupation. In other nations, it trains an entire class of people to see the world in a manner conducive to American state and corporate interests. Furthermore, there are many opportunities to make enormous private profits from these projects. Outsourcing dirty activities to private companies also allows the U.S. government to distance itself from any scandals. Perhaps most importantly, however, is that there is no public oversight with private companies. As Ho explained, quote, You can hide things by using these private companies. Private companies don't fall under Freedom of Information Act requests. So if you're working in Nicaragua with USAID, Theoretically, all your work should be available to U.S. citizens by way of the Freedom of Information Act and other mechanisms. But if you're a private company, you don't have that to any degree. So there is a lot that can be done with these private companies that the government can't do, particularly with regard to plausible deniability. 
Ultimately, Creative Associates International has grown into an important part of the American military think tank industrial complex. While technically a private company, the fact that virtually the entirety of its funding comes from Washington and that its board is full of high U.S. officials demonstrates that the organization is an integral part of Washington's global strategy. However, the veneer of privatization helps it avoid the public scrutiny that a government department would receive. While mercenary armies like Blackwater have at least been subject to inquiry, making the company's name infamous around the world, Creative Associates International has largely flown under the radar, exactly where the organization's board wants it to be. And finally, one more piece by Caitlin Johnstone. Once again, you can find Caitlin Johnstone's writing at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. Stop believing U.S. military invasions have noble intentions. Notes from the edge of the narrative matrix. I love how everyone's just pretending the Afghanistan papers never happened and the Taliban takeover is some kind of shocking tragedy instead of the thing everyone knew would happen because they've been knowingly lying about working to create a stable government this entire time. If the U.S. had a free press and was anything like a democracy, the government wouldn't be getting away with squandering thousands of lives and trillions of dollars on a 20-year war which accomplished literally nothing besides making assholes obscenely wealthy. Thousands of human lives. Trillions of dollars. If Western mass media were anything remotely resembling what they purport to be, they would be making sure the public understands how badly their government just fucked them. Instead, it's just, oh no, those poor Afghan women. War apologists talk about doing nothing, like that's somehow worse than creating mountains of human corpses for power and profit. Quote, we've got to do something about the Taliban. We can't just do nothing. Uh, yes, you can. Please, for the love of God, do nothing. Doing nothing would be infinitely better than more military interventionism in a nation you've already tortured for 20 years for no valid reason. People who think U.S. interventionism solves problems just haven't gone through the mountains upon mountains of evidence that it definitely, definitely does not at all. Nobody honestly believes the U.S. needs to invade every nation in the world with illiberal cultural values. They only think that way with Afghanistan due to war propaganda. And women's lives in Afghanistan have still been shit under the occupation. They had 20 years to build a stable nation in Afghanistan. 20 years. If you believe that's what they were really trying to do there, or that results would be any different if you gave them 20 more, you're a fucking moron. If you think the U.S. needs to be in Afghanistan so the Taliban doesn't take over, then have some integrity and intellectual honesty and admit you want perpetual occupation. In which case, you should be arguing for Afghan annexation so they get votes in congressional representation. The objection shouldn't be that there was no withdrawal plan. It should be that there was no occupation plan. 
Nothing was done in those entire 20 years for the long-term benefit of Afghans. The entire plan was, quote, stay and plunder as much as we can until we feel like leaving. And of course, more than this, we should be upset that the U.S. and its allies invaded Afghanistan at all, killing hundreds of thousands of people for no legitimate reason. When all you've got is an insanely overfunded military, every problem looks like a job for your insanely overfunded military. I am once again asking you to stop believing U.S. military invasions have noble intentions. And stop blaming this on the, quote, corrupt Afghan government. There was no Afghan government. There was just whatever random Afghans happened to be willing to align with the occupying force that invaded their country while it was there. All blame rests entirely on that occupying force. Now would be a great time to unrehabilitate public opinion of George W. Bush. People who think the U.S. military can be used for good remind me of that scene in Edward Scissorhands where he's going around the house accidentally slashing things and then trying to fix them, but he can't fix them because he's got horrible scissorhands that can only slash. Every time mass military murder fails to achieve good things, the proponents of mass military murder show up saying, the problem is we didn't murder enough people. As we heard in that previous story, where in the, the, the parade of generals out there in the media the problem is we didn't we didn't do enough military you'll never see westerners so concerned about humanitarian issues as when there's a chance some distant part of the world might not be subjected to military occupation by the most murderous power structure on earth oh no the country is immediately returning to the state it was in before we started using mass military violence to force it to look a bit different for a while. That's like dressing your kid up as Batman for Halloween and then getting sad the next day because Batman's gone. So many movies depict young men coming home from World War II like Howdy Ma, Hey Pop, Boy It's Great to Be Home, Now We Gotta Go See About That Girl. Instead of hollowed out husks, who go on to live out miserable half-lives, beating their children and trying to drink away their trauma. I still can't get over how mainstream news stories about empire-targeted countries can be based entirely on reports by think tanks that are openly funded by weapons manufacturers. How is the fact that this is journalistic malpractice not obvious to everyone in the world? The international symbol for the United States should be the Pentagon. It's far more representative of what that nation stands for and what it does than some flag or eagle. War is the worst thing in the world. It is the single most insane, destructive, and unsustainable thing humans do. People who tell me I shouldn't focus on it as much are people I just disregard because they simply don't grasp the horrific nature of war and the need to condemn it. Just another regular reminder that there will never be peace and economic justice as long as the majority are successfully convinced by the establishment propaganda that those things are not in their interest. The propaganda machine must first be discredited and rendered non-functioning. And finally, if you've got any urge to write articles or make videos 
or a podcast. Just do it. You are infinitely more qualified to be the media than the people who are paid by billionaires to lie, and they're not asking anyone for permission to speak. If Chris fucking Como gets a voice, then so do you. You don't have to be perfect or professional quality or whatever. Hell, give yourself permission to outright suck at first if that's how it plays out. Give yourself permission to not be perfect and just learn as you go and correct your mistakes as you make them. That's allowed. Again, no matter how bad you are, you are still infinitely more qualified to report the news and tell the truth than any of the shit stains who are being platformed by multi-billion dollar media outlets right now. And whatever you make will be better than what they make. Just do it. Don't stop if you don't get a big audience right away. Or if you never do. It's not about that. If you can open up even one person's eyes to one aspect of reality, you are helping humanity to become a more conscious species by that much. That's what it's about. That's what matters. And even if you don't do that, fleshing out your ideas in some public medium is a great way to help yourself become aware of more things and deepen your own understanding. So you're still improving humanity by that much. So no matter what happens, you can't lose. If we're ever to turn things around, it will be the result of a very large number of us grabbing a rope and tugging. You don't have to be a megastar. You just have to do your bit. Start from there and see what happens. So well said. It's why I do this podcast. It's why I do my other podcasts to express something to try to cut through the bullshit to learn to share that learning and uh, you don't have to be perfect or professional I am proof of that you don't have to have a big audience I am proof of that but it's still important it's important to me And if you're listening, maybe it's important to you. And uh, don't be satisfied just listening. Yeah, you should definitely listen. Listening is important. Not to this specifically, but to voices, to variety of voices. But speaking is also important. There's a quote that I used to say haven't in a while um when you speak you repeat something that you already know but when you listen you learn something kind of uh raising the importance of listening and in in listening is critical and important and often in many instances we don't listen enough but It's also important to speak, even if you're repeating something you already know. Um, 
stating something that you know can help you learn. It can help others learn. It can lead others to challenge you and to sometimes evolve or change your opinion about something. It's incredibly important in whatever way you can and however you feel comfortable and whenever you feel uncomfortable to speak and to listen. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can listen to me talk, me share other people's words, which is what I primarily do on this podcast and on my other podcasts uh, at movingtrainradio.com, where you'll find my podcast playing 24-7. And now, a moment of zen. Thanks for listening. And uh, you get the impression that I'm against war. And that I think at a time when all the bugles are blowing for war and all the, uh, you know, all the voices on television and the, the government spokesmen and the media people are, are not questioning, are getting in line. And they're not questioning, should we do this? They're questioning, how should we do this? And uh, should we use ground troops or should we use the airplanes? And the trick in thinking transcendentally is, is to think, what questions aren't they asking? Uh, what are they assuming that we accept? And, and they're burrowing down into the question of, uh, should we do it this way and should we do it that way? Instead of asking the question, should we be doing this? And of course, I'm, I'm telling you all this at a time when it is, you know, uh, unpopular to speak against the bombing that is now going on. Because all these voices around us are telling us it's the right thing to do, it's the only thing to do. And they're saying that they're rushing from one truth, one undeniable truth, to uh, a false conclusion. They're rushing from the undeniable truth that some fanatic group killed 6,000 innocent people in New York and Washington. The jumping from that undeniable truth to, therefore, we must bomb. And that's where people need to be careful about these jumps that are made. Because the first thing is true, and then you have to be very, very careful about where you move from there. Because the next question to ask is, therefore, what shall we do? And not, well, we know what to do, because this is what we've always done. We've always met violence with violence. Well, if you had any sense of history, if you knew some history, you would look at the various instances in which we have met violence with violence and ask, what was the result? Or in which other countries have met violence with violence and asked, what was the result? 
And it would help to redefine the word terrorism. Because what happened in New York was an act of terrorism. But to isolate it from the history of terrorism will mislead you very dangerously. And this act of terrorism exploded in our faces because it was right next door and, they, and we could see these people and they were, you know, right, right here. But there have been acts of terrorism going on for a long time all over the world. And the idea of bringing that up is not to diminish what happened and not to minimize the terror of what happened in New York, but to enlarge our compassion beyond that. Otherwise, we will never understand what happened and what we must do about it. Because when you enlarge the question and define terrorism as, yes, the ugly killing of innocent people for some presumed political purpose, then you find that all sorts of nations have engaged in terrorism, as well as individuals and groups, and that there is such a thing as state terrorism, along with individual and group terrorism. And when states commit terrorism, that is when nations commit terrorism, they have far greater means at their disposal for killing people than single individuals or groups. I mean, the United States has been responsible for acts of terrorism. Now, it's uh, difficult to say that. When you say that, people say, oh, you're trying to minimize what was done. No, not trying to minimize. Trying to enlarge. Trying to broaden our scope. Trying to understand. The United States and England have been responsible for the deaths of large numbers of people, of innocent people, in the world. You know. And it doesn't take too much history to, to see that, to think of Vietnam, to think of Laos and Cambodia, to think of Central America, to think of 200,000 dead in Guatemala as a result of a government that the United States armed and supported. I know all this is unsettling. We don't want to hear criticism of the United States government when we have been the victims of a terrorist act. But we have to think about terrorism in the largest sense and how we are going to stop it. And, uh, and we have to ask the question, is bombing going to stop it? Or is further terrorism going to stop it? Because war is terrorism. Because war in our time inevitably involves the killing of innocent people. And it may not immediately be, you know, can't match the killing of 6,000 people. No, we've only killed a handful of people in Afghanistan. But we've more than matched that at other times. No. And there are perhaps a million people who have died in Iraq as a result of sanctions that we uh, have enforced and imposed. And, you know, it's not a, and it's not a matter of measuring, oh, well, they killed more than us, so we killed more than them. We have to see all of these things as terrorist acts that have taken place in the world, and what can we do about it? And decide that you can't respond to one terrorist act with war, because then you are engaging in the same kind of thing that terrorists engage in. And that is, the, think, the thinking goes like this. Well, yes, innocent people died. Too bad. But it was done for an important purpose. It was collateral damage. You must accept collateral damage when you're doing something very important. 
That's how terrorists justify what they do. That's how nations justify what they do.